2 Samuel 24 tonight, and finally, we're at the end of our study of the book of 2 Samuel. I was going to look, and I failed to do so when it was we started this, but it's been a little while anyway. But we're finally here at the end, and this last chapter here of 2 Samuel, it tells us about David taking a census of, of his people. Now, we're, we're all familiar with the census. It, in fact, just last year, uh, we dealt with that census. But it, it was legally mandated by the Constitution of the United States, and it takes place every 10 years. Uh, the first one was in 1790, and there have been 23 censuses since that time, and, of course, the most recent one last year. Um, it's a, and, and really, it just makes sense. It's, it's a matter of wisdom. Um, I remember there was a year when I was in Tennessee, I volunteered, well, I say volunteer, they paid me, I wasn't, but uh, to go around and to help them take the census. And it was an interesting thing, they, uh, pretty easy to do, I'm always visiting with people, but when they find out, there's some down there in Tennessee anyway, and I'm sure they're around here, when they find out they're, you're uh, there with the government that you're taking a census, I, a couple of places, I got threatened. Uh, they, you know, wouldn't even let me on the property. That's fine. I said, well, that's good. I understand. I'm not, I'm no force in here. I, I'd go the other way. But, um, but it makes sense. And I understand the, uh, you know, doubts and the not trusting the government. I understand that aspect too. But it makes sense uh, for uh, the country to take account and uh, to, to see what the uh, needs are in those communities, that kind of thing. But it's a, uh, again, it's, a, it does, it's logical, it makes sense, but uh, that's what makes this chapter here, chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, really puzzling. Um, when you read it for the first time anyway, it just seems very puzzling. David takes the census of the nation and it turned out to be a calamity. I mean, thousands of people died. Now, why? What was the problem here? Well, let's read here 2 Samuel 24. It's only 25 verses. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people." And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord the king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in er Eror, in the uh, right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river of Gad and toward uh, Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of uh, Tahamadash. Oh, no. oh, no, I got that name messed up there, didn't I? But uh, they came to uh, Dajan and about to uh, Zion and came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivite, Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out... Uh, to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. And when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months, 
and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. Now, I know as you're reading this, and you've, I'm sure, read it before, there's probably questions in, in your mind. Some of this doesn't seem to, to make sense as we read through it. Well, the problem is a lot of it's not being revealed. We don't know everything that's happening here. But he says, I have sinned greatly in that I have done what I have done. And I, now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. These are punishments. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. We'll stop right there for now. Uh, and we get it, kind of get an idea of what's happening here in this passage after he takes this census. But uh, uh, on September the 2nd, 1990, I'm sure if some of you may remember this, a murder occurred in New York City. Well, that's not unusual. That happens quite frequently. But this murder really did just horrify the nation. And the Watkins family from Provo, Utah, there was a father, a mother, and their two sons were just in their early 20s or maybe late teens. I know one was in his early 20s. And so just young men, they uh, came to the city for a, a trip, a long-anticipated trip they'd been planning on for many months. Uh, they were going to go to the U.S. Open tennis match. And while they were waiting there on the subway, uh, they're there on the platform waiting for the train. The family was assaulted by a, a band of four young men. The older of the two sons went to protect his mother. They were kicking her in the face. They were just brutalizing her. And so this young man stepped up and tried to protect her, and they stabbed him and killed him right in front of his parents and his brother. And uh, so the judge, Edwin Torres... He sentenced all four attackers to life without parole, the toughest sentence at that time anyway uh, there in New York City. And in doing so, he issued this statement I think is just amazing, especially in light of some of these liberal active judges we have. But he said this, in uh, a band of marauders, um, well, he made this statement giving a, a alarm here for a society, he said, in which this band of marauders can surround, pounce upon, and kill a boy in front of his parents and then stride off up the block to Roseland and dance until 4 a.m. as if they had stepped on an insect. These acts were a visitation that the devil himself would hesitate to conjure up. That cannot go unpunished. 
Well, uh, boy, when we hear something like that, our anger rises, and we think, and, and especially when uh, some of these people, for instance, like the, uh, just was it yesterday? The, I can't remember exactly when it happened. Uh, the Asian, the elderly lady was beaten, and they caught the guy, um, and he had stabbed his mother to death. Not that long ago. I think it was 17 years ago. Why is he out of prison? And so our anger rises when things like that happen. But many people get uneasy when we begin to talk about the wrath of God. And that's what we see in this chapter here, the wrath of God. Now, they, people may get uneasy about it. They don't like to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is the Bible is very clear uh, and often speaks of the wrath of God. What does it take to get you outraged? I think lately there's been a lot of things that's happened in our country that has just quite frankly outraged all of us. But most of the time it's smaller than something like that I just referred to this story of the murder, but it's still something worthy of our anger. But we get outraged. We get outraged about uh, property taxes. We get outraged about how uh, it, it, something might, might affect the value of our property. We get outraged by the, our tax cuts being taken away. We get outraged by many, uh, multiple things. And, but all of us are capable of anger. We're capable of getting angry at something. And not all anger is sin, but God's anger, it is pure. Now, most of the time when we get angry, we do end up sinning. Um, but God's anger, however, is pure. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up, and it's not God throwing a temper tantrum. And not at all. And in fact, the wrath of God is a way of describing his absolute enmity, his uh, uh, hatred for sin and for all that is wrong, and that one day he is going to come and set everything straight, set it right. Our, our culture doesn't like to talk about the wrath of God. A lot of Christians don't like to talk about the wrath of God. But the Bible talks about the wrath of God. And I believe this chapter here in 2 Samuel 24, that's what it's all about. And I, I just want to refer a few points here about the wrath of God. Number one, God's wrath allowed sin. I don't know if you caught that, but God's wrath allowed sin. In verses 1 through 9, in fact, in verse 1, if you look again, uh, it says, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, why was God angry? Why was he angry with Israel? We really don't know for sure. It, he had a lot of reasons, I'm sure, to be angry with Israel. Uh, but why? we don't know in this specific situation. The text does not tell us. So, in fact, there's a lot in this chapter, as I mentioned earlier, that's left unexplained. And, and it does, that doesn't mean we can't understand the text, but we can't be dogmatic with this is the way it is. We can speculate in some of these areas, but uh, we don't have all in, in every situation here in, in 2 Samuel 24 do we have all the clear-cut answers. It's possible that God was finally punishing his people for not accepting David, and therefore, by not accepting David, they were not accepting him. And now God is punishing them. But the text doesn't explicitly say that. And the text goes on to say there in verse 1, 
he, that the Lord moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And then uh, the same incident that's recorded in First um, Chronicles 21, verse 1, and it, it's, listen to this. Here we see that the Lord moved David. In First Chronicles, listen, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? God here is moving David to number the people. And then over in 1 Chronicles, Satan stood up. Satan is, is uh, trying to get David or was uh, tempting David to do this. So obviously, the Bible is not wrong. Obviously, there is no contradiction here. The Bible contains no er errors at all. So what's the deal? Well, both God and Satan were involved here. I should say God allowed Satan to be, um, to be used in this way to carry out his judgment, his will, his wrath. And so he involved, they both were involved in, in, in inciting David to number Israel. Now, God is sovereign over all things. And God, he, he's over also the, even the actions of Satan. We don't, the devil can't do anything without getting permission from, the de or from God. Uh, he is like a dog on a chain. But the way to understand these two texts is to see that God was angry with Israel. So he incited David to number Israel by means of Satan's temptation. It kind of sounds unusual, uh, but remember, I, I stated here, God's wrath allowed David to sin use this sin to uh, uh, punish his people. Uh, again, we're not told what David's sin was here exactly. Um, but commentators, they, they have a lot of uh, theories. Some say his sin was that he failed to re require half a shekel, uh, which was required by when a census was taken in the book of Exodus, chapter 30. Others say that David's sin was that he numbered those who were under 20 years old and not uh, yet ready to bear arms, according to 1 Chronicles 27. Others speculate that David's census was actually an act of unbelief. And that's kind of where I, I believe. Uh, unbelief by not trusting in the Lord to protect uh, his people in the case of war. And so relying on the numbers, relying on the might of his military rather than relying on God. And still others think that David's sin was the result of pride because he was just pleased in his military strength. We're not told what um, was David's sin here exactly. But it, it may be a combination of every one of those things. Who knows? We, we'll find out one day exactly. But uh, the point is that God was angry with his people. God does not throw a temper tantrum. God's, God does not, uh, his anger does not lose or get out of control. God was righteously, he was right in his anger against his people, and he allows David to commit this sin. I didn't say he made David sin, but he allowed it to happen. And so David gave the order to the people to, to number them there in verse 2. In verse 3, Joab says, wait a minute, we can't do this. He tries to object. And uh, David overruled Joab and the captains there in verse 4. 
And his commanders, they go out, Joab and his commanders, they completely, they get a complete count of all the men in Israel and Judah. Now, some struggle with the truth that because of the wrath of God, sin was committed. It seems backwards to them. And I understand that. Surely God doesn't allow us to commit sin because he's angry with us. But I want you to think about something, another passage of Scripture that, that uh, is dealing with the wrath of God, where Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. That's a familiar passage. In verse 18 of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. For explaining the reason for the wrath of God... Now, Paul goes on to say this. He says three times that God gave them up. He gave them up. Uh, he gave them up to all kinds of sin. And we don't, we're not going to turn over there for the sake of time, but you recall that it lists a whole bunch of awful things that he gave them up to. So the wrath of God. God is sovereign. God knew exactly what he was doing, and he was just in doing it. He was right in doing it, even if we can't quite understand why. But God's wrath allowed this sin to take place that he might bring judgment upon the people. Then secondly, and that's where I had already mentioned the judgment of God, God's wrath brought judgment. Now that goes hand in hand, the wrath of God. It brings judgment upon those who have stood against God. In verses 10 down through verse 15, we see this, but David felt convicted that uh, he had sinned against God. There, um, oh, let me find that verse again. <clears throat> verse 10, David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. He, he was under conviction here. It was only after David recognized that he had sinned, only after David confessed uh, his sin, that the Lord sends this prophet Gad to David. Now, the Lord gave David three options. We, talk, we read those already. He says, you have these three options. Through the prophet Gad, he says, you can choose which one of these uh, judgments, three years of famine, three months of, of, of running from your foes, or three days of pestilence. And so that's found in verse 13. David chose option number two, three months of fleeing from his foes. He said in verse 14, I'm in a great strait. Let us fall now in the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord's judgment was delivered. We read there in verse 15 that, uh, let me read that again. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. One out of 20 men died. That's a lot of people. And uh, so God's wrath allowed this sin. God's wrath brought judgment. Number three, God's wrath revealed mercy, even in the midst of this sinful act, in which we're not all real sure exactly uh, what the sin was. We have a pretty good idea. We can speculate. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but we know what sin, the Bible says it was. And so God's wrath, even in that time, we see mercy is revealed. 
Look with me at verses 16 and 17. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said unto the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arona, the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Uh, let thine hand, I pray, they be against me and against my father's house. Now, David had already acknowledged the Lord's mercy time and time again. He acknowledged that God's mercy is great, that it's fresh every morning, new every morning. And now we read here in verse 17 that David was thinking like a shepherd. Um, the people of Israel, the flock of God, what was happening? They were dying. And he begged God for God's mercy. And the Lord's judgment, he asked that God, your judgment not fall on, or not, you know, not punish the people, but let it fall on me. I'll take the punishment, the judgment. Um, and because these, he looked at these people as the sheep of God, and he was the shepherd, and he uh, was responsible. So the Lord told the angel, it's enough, stay thine hand there in verse 16. Um, we need to keep this in mind, though, as we're, we see this passage here where David cries out to God for mercy. This was not mere wishful thinking on David's part. Oh, I hope I can find mercy. I, you know, I wish I, I could find mercy. No, no, it's, it, there's no, he knows that God is a merciful God. He is confident of that fact, and, and uh, he knew God. He had a relationship with God. The Lord is my shepherd. And in fact, Psalm 51, you remember David committed that uh, horrible sin with Bathsheba, killed Uriah, and all this mess that happened here. And when David finally got right with God, Psalm 51 was written. Have mercy upon me, O God, he cries out there in Psalm 51, verse 1, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy, listen to this, tender mercies, blot out my transgression. So David knew that God was merciful. He had experienced it firsthand. And so now he cries, he, he uh, uh, calls out to God to be merciful in this situation. Um, so David's experience had taught, taught him that God was merciful and that he was right to plead for God's mercy. And so are we. When we are, maybe we are, we're in the wrong, maybe we're facing a difficult situation. Nothing wrong with crying out for God's mercy. We have experienced it. We know God is merciful. We know God is loving. And so let's uh, definitely fall upon his mercy. And if we got what we deserved, uh, it would be, a, well, it'd be hell. Thank God we don't get what we deserve, but we're thankful for his mercy. Uh, so was it not David who experienced that wonderful mercy when he committed that sin? Yes. And so David knew that God's mercy is kinder and gentler than anything that uh, could ever come his way. I, I would rather fall into the hands of God in his mercy than fall into the hands of man in this world. 
You remember, um, I don't know how many years back it was, there was a situation that took place in the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. Remember that little toddler, I think maybe about three years old, fell into that, uh, that area of the gorillas. And I think it, it, if a fall was something like 18 feet, the little boy was hurt. And uh, here is these gorillas, seven gorillas in there. And, of course, you remember the one store, that one female gorilla, I think she was about seven years old, went and picked up that little boy and cradled him in her arms, this gorilla. And she took him over to the, the zookeeper's door and laid him at the door so they could get him. Uh, it was just an amazing story. To, I remember that it really sticks out in my mind. But I'm sure the family was grateful. Maybe they bought something special for that gorilla. I don't know about that. But I would definitely be thankful for the fact that that animal did not go by uh, some of the instincts that they are known for. But I assure you that the family didn't say, you know, we have another child. Let's give that child to that gorilla too. No, I'm not going to take another chance like that at all. Uh, not like the fellow I saw a couple weeks ago who had his, his, little, his little baby again in the elephant. Uh, I, don't, I forget where that was at, but he went into an elephant uh, area and the elephant started attacking them and crazy people. But this little boy, it was all on him. He fell in there and this uh, gorilla uh, uh, took care of him. And so sadly, though, that goes against what we think. I mean, rightfully so. If we're in the wild and some gorilla in the jungle and a gorilla comes at us, we're not going to think, oh, these are kind, gentle, merciful little creatures that'll, that'll uh, uh, love us. No, uh, we're thinking this animal is going to tear us apart. Uh, we need to run for our lives. And so, but we tend to look upon God's mercy kind of like that. You know, uh, that it's a, a divine exception rather than his character. You know, in this case with a gorilla, well, that's just a one in a million chance that that would ever happen. Normally, a gorilla would act violently, what some would say. And, and so, so many act that way toward God. Well, if it's a really a, a great, it'll be a, a amazing, it'll be the exception if we see the mercy of God. Not really. That's his divine character. And David didn't think that way at all. He knew he was not facing a God that was unpredictable like some wild animal. You never know how that animal is going to behave in the wild. In fact, even in the zoo, you get in their pen, their, their uh, surroundings. You don't know how they're going to behave. But uh, we know how God behaves. He's very predictable when it comes to his character. We know he's loving. We know he's merciful. So God's wrath reveals mercy, even in his wrath. Uh, you know, we were condemned before we were saved, but his mercy offered salvation. You think about these people who are cursing God right now, shaking their fist at him, who say, I don't believe in God, and we don't want anything to do with God. God still is merciful to them, allowing them to breathe the air and have another opportunity to get saved. Well, the fourth thing about God's wrath, it brought atonement. Amen. Verses 18 through the remainder of the chapter, And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, uh, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arona, the uh, Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. 
And Arona the, took, or looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arona went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arona said, We are wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arona said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here uh, be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Arona uh, as a king give unto the king. And Arona said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Arona, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed uh, from Israel. Verse 16 tells us that when the Lord told the angel to stop this uh, judgment, this uh, work of destruction among the people, that the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arona, the Jebusite. Then it says, Gad went out and tells David in verse 18, go up and you know, build this altar unto the Lord there in the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David does exactly as the Lord commanded him to do. And, it, and really, this is kind of a typical uh, scene here. He uh, comes there to Arona, and they, uh, they haggle back and forth. You know, they're uh, very much uh, uh, like when we were in Israel. That's all they did. Everywhere we went, they were haggling. And, but they went back and forth over the price of the property. Now, I, I want to talk about this property before we're done here, but David knew that he must pay the full price because it was to belong to the Lord, and it was to be a sacrifice. He didn't want to take it. The guy offered to take it. No, he said, I can't do it. Or you offer. You make the best offer. No, he wanted to pay the full price for it. He wanted to sacrifice here to the Lord. So David bought the threshing floor. He bought all the, round, the land around that and um, the oxen in order to um, make this sacrifice there. There in verse 25, uh, David builds this altar and the Lord offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the uh, plea for the land and the, pla the, the, the plague was uh, averted. It was stopped uh, from Israel. Now we learn of, of the significance of this property. That's what I was going to get at before we close. We learn about that in 2 Chronicles. If you would turn there, 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. Just a few pages to your right. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And verse 1. Here the Bible says, Then uh, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, that's Arona, the Jebusite. So you see the significance here of this property. It was on Mount Moriah. What, what, what is one of the things that happened on Mount Moriah? before David's time, yeah, where Abraham uh, offered his only son as a sacrifice there on Mount Moriah. 
And then, of course, God provided the the ram there in Genesis 22. And so as Abraham was about to kill his son Isaac, uh, the angel calls out to him, of course, and provides this lamb. And and so now more than a 1,000 years has passed. A 1,000 years later, the angel of the Lord again stops the killing of uh, the, on the very same spot uh, there, Mount Moriah. And David offered uh, his life there for the lives of the people. And David, of course, didn't die here, but he offered, as did Isaac. And, and so later, his, his son, Solomon, what did he do uh, with, on this property? Remember what he, what he built? Built the temple, right? And so Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, and were, who knows how many thousands upon thousands of animals were sacrificed uh, every year to atone for the sins of the people. And now what were they doing in those sacrifices? They were looking forward to uh, Jesus Christ's coming, that ultimate sacrifice that would forever pay for all sins of mankind. And so a, a thousand years after David, uh, the... Uh, um, you know, he did die there just a short distance from Moriah. And he, he died to make, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ died to make atonement for David's sins as well as our sins and the sins of all of mankind. So the wrath of God is, we see it firsthand here in 2 Samuel 24. It's not a very pleasant thing at all. Uh, but we also see his atonement. He's, all, he's always extending his invitation. Atonement is the means of, of becoming right with God. Uh, where, where mankind was separated from God because of their sin. And now the atonement has been given to uh, make reconciliation between God and man. So God's justice has to be satisfied. And the only way it could have been satisfied was with the blood of Jesus Christ. The penalty for sin must be paid, and it was paid on the cross of Calvary. And that's what we're, you, you can see, because of this, this story here, you can see um, the future events that were yet to happen and how they related to it. He, Jesus satisfied uh, the justice of a holy, righteous God by offering his life on the cross. Uh, so, if you're saved, you've been atoned. You're, you're, you, you've been, your sins have been atoned for. And if not, the offer still stands. But uh, the wrath of God is real. People don't like to talk about it, but right now, as it says in John chapter 3, if a person's not saved, they are under the wrath of God. Not one day will be, they are right now. Just as we, when we are saved, we receive that eternal life right now. We don't have to wait for it, it's ours now.